Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath uh, here at the law firm Keller and Heckman, and I am joined today by my colleague, John Gustafson. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, John, as you know, we have a great topic today. Uh, a really, I think, was going to be a landmark decision in the field of occupational safety and health law, one that was handed down by the Review Commission, uh, which is uh, one involving uh, the general duty clause, and it involves an employer named Integra Health Systems. So let's go ahead and get into it. But before we do, let me first say that, as many of you know, we've been doing the OSHA 3030 for a little over six years. I think we're in our seventh year and probably around our 79th episode of the OSHA 3030. All of our prior OSHA 3030 episodes have been libraried on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. And as well, for the past few years, we've been rebroadcasting this webinar as, as a podcast. And so you can subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast media like uh, your Apple podcast or uh, SoundCloud, etc. And uh, that way it'll just automatically download and you're not going to have to be tethered to your desk to enjoy the OSHA 3030. I listen to it while driving, as well as our sister programs, the FIFRA 3030, the Tosca 3030. Uh, and I, I'll suggest as well that uh, that some of you may not have heard this before, but when you get an invitation to the OSHA 3030, please forward that invitation to three other people at least who are safety and health professionals uh, or in-house counsel responsible for OSHA law compliance, either at your organization or friends and colleagues, counterparts at other organizations uh, whom you may know who may benefit from the OSHA 3030 because new attendees are the lifeblood of the organization uh, and for the ongoing success of the OSHA 3030. We want to keep this program going because we, we provide valuable information to our clients and friends of the firm, complimentary. And so your forwarding on the invitation to others is a, a critical part of making that happen. So with that said, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, to begin with, I think we ought to to first go get into a background of the general duty clause, since that's what this case is about. Right. Uh, so we'll do that, and then we will discuss the facts of the case. Uh, we will analyze the decision and the potential impact it will have. Uh, Monish will then compare OSHA enforcement using the general duty clause versus uh enforcement using specific standards, and we'll talk briefly about a potential future workplace uh, violence standard, which has been a recent hot topic, and finally, what employers should do. We always try and leave off with that practical takeaway list of, uh, of takeaway items that, that attendees of the OSHA 3030 can bring back with them. Uh, so, with that said, why don't we start with the background of the General Duty Clause. So, this is a clause in the Occupational Safety and Health Act, and it's found in Section 5A1 of the Act. And I guess the plain English way of describing it is it's a catch-all. The Act allows for the agency to promulgate standards in the fields of health and in safety. And to the extent that a standard hasn't been promulgated 
on a specific question of safety or health, Congress also created the General Duty Clause and enabled OSHA to bring enforcement actions under the General Duty Clause. The General Duty Clause essentially says that every employer must provide a place of employment that's free from recognized hazards that are causing or are likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees. There's a few things, uh, I'd say there's a few features in this clause that are really important. One is that the General Duty Clause uh, requires that employers provide a place of employment that's free from recognized hazards. Uh, John, I think that that's, that's an absolute sentence in the uh, statute that really goes to the end, end point that employers should be striving for. That's right, Manish. And looking at that language, uh, it almost looks like employers could be strictly liable or liable for any hazard, but courts have interpreted free from as aspirational language. So only uh, employers only must eliminate preventable forms of hazards. And in turn, preventable, uh, a hazard is only preventable if it can be feasibly eliminated, meaning it's not too idiosyncratic and implausible or too untested or expensive. And by recognized hazards, we mean recognized by either a company, an employer, or the industry generally. Well, I think that's a really important point that we, we're going to want everyone to be mindful of as they're listening as we get into the Integra Health Management Systems uh, case. Uh, the preventability quotient is, I think, elemental to not only all general duty clause enforcement actions, but in this one in particular. The other feature of this passage, the general duty clause, is that uh, it requires that employers uh, furnish a place of employment that's free from recognized hazards. Well, I guess recognized hazards we should talk about. The question of what hazard is recognized either by the employer or by the uh, industry that the employer uh, sits in is really not always a clear-cut question. There, there are some times where there is clear evidence of what's a generally recognized hazard, and there are others where it's uh, an open question. And then the other I'd like to point out is that this deals with hazards that are likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees. Why is this important? Because if OSHA were promulgating a health or safety standard, it's safe to say that that health or safety standard need not relate to an issue that's likely to cause death or serious physical harm. Uh, it could be a hazard with a far milder potential outcome. Whereas if OSHA intended to enforce, uh, bring an enforcement action under the general duty clause, it really does need to be uh, a relating to a hazard of that level of severity of potential outcomes of death or serious physical harm. Otherwise, it opens up the possibility for an employer to challenge the misuse of the general duty clause uh, as an enfor enforcement vehicle. So with that said, the general, the general duty clause has been used by OSHA in a number of cases where uh, they believed that a standard wasn't uh, available that spoke specifically to the hazard in question, but that they believed that there was nevertheless a hazard that they would have alleged was either uh, clearly recognized by the employer or clearly recognized by that employer's industry. Uh, some cases where OSHA has made that allegation uh, involve cases 
alleging ergonomics hazards that were left unattended to by the employer, uh, according to OSHA. The Pepperidge Farm case is probably one of the more significant examples of that, where they alleged that the job descriptions in question involved heavy lifting on a repetitive basis that would have yielded a higher incidence of of soft tissue injuries and uh, repetitive stress disorders and or cumulative stress disorders. And other cases that are similar in nature, like standing job descriptions, job descriptions involving uh, extreme temperatures. In the case of extreme cold, uh, you might have uh, allegations by OSHA that, uh, for example, in the meatpacking industry, that in extreme cold, the use of the hands in repetitive motions could have led to uh, cumulative uh, injuries, uh, cumulative exposure injuries, and in the case of extreme heat, that there, uh, the OSHA has alleged that there are known uh, circumstances where exposures to extreme heat uh, would lead to a predictable number or percentage of outcomes or cases involving heat stress. Uh, there are many others, and even involving machinery. For example, uh, the the lockout tagout standard or the machine guarding standard don't have any specific provisions for automatic shutoff. So OSHA has used uh, the general duty clause to enforce uh, the use of automatic shutoffs for conveyor belts, for pipe threading machinery, etc. So there's, there's a number of cases out there, uh, as well as uh, uh, here is in, in this particular case, in cases involving workplace violence, there have been one or two. So with that said, that gives you a basic background on the general duty clause. Let's go ahead and get into the specific elements of the general duty clause. I think that there are four well-recognized elements that OSHA has to establish in bringing a general duty clause violation. It first has to allege and be able to establish that there existed at that workplace a condition or activity that presented a hazard. Uh, so even if a hazard was recognized in the industry and the employer uh, OSHA was able to allege had taken no steps to to abate it. If there was no actual hazard at that workplace, that would not present a case for OSHA to prevail uh, under the general duty clause. So there has to be an actual uh, condition or activity that presented a hazard. The second is that the employer recognized that condition as hazardous, or if not, that his, its industry recognized that condition or activity as presenting a hazard. The third element that OSHA would have to be able to establish is that the hazard in question is one, as we talked about before, that is likely to lead to death or serious physical harm. And then finally, OSHA would have to be able to establish that an effective means or a feasible means uh, was available to the employer to materially reduce the hazard uh, or manage that hazard. And unless it can show that there was a feasible and effective means for abatement, the general duty clause is a very difficult, I think, standard for uh, OSHA to, to enforce against an employer or section of the act for OSHA to enforce against an employer. So that, I think, brings everyone current on the general duty clause. John, why don't we talk about the Integra Health Management case and, and the facts in that case? Sure. So... Uh, Integra is a company that uh, connects people who need healthcare services and and who often avoid uh, using those services to medical professionals. And uh, the purpose here really is to avoid later 
costly emergency room visits and long hospital stays. Uh, so, so better for insurers, better for uh, health care providers, and, and better for the members. These might be referred to as community service workers. That's right. So th- this job requires uh, these coordinators to have very personal contact with the members. Uh, they visit members in homes. They drive members to doctors using their own cars. They've even uh, gone to homeless shelters to seek out the members. Um, and they oftentimes meet one-on-one with these members. Uh, a lot of these members have criminal or violent uh, histories, uh, possible incarceration history, uh, substance abuse seekers, excuse me, substance drug seeking behavior. Um, and so uh, OSHA, excuse me, the commission talked about a possible higher risk of violence in uh, from these uh, members. And it's important to note that uh, in Integra's policies regarding the, these, uh, this potential for violence, Integra did not conduct uh, background checks on these members before this citation occurred. Uh, it did have some violence safety training and recommended procedures to avoid violent incidents, but uh, the commission characterized that as, as uh, not as thorough as it could be. Well, I'm sure it's possible to do more in every case, but I, as I understand or recollect the facts of the case, the the new employees were uh, expected to go through a three-day online training program, some of which included uh, safety and health, and some of that which included uh, recognizing and dealing with potentially violent members or patients. That's right. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot that you can do, though, because empl- uh, the members are are not always obviously going to signal pending violence or a tendency to violence. And that's a very difficult, I think, question to deal with in training, at the training level in, in the first three days of employment. But, but you're right. The commission did note that uh, they believed that more could have been done in training. Right. And I think you bring up a a very interesting part of this case is is the hazard here is, in many cases, unpredictable. Uh, employers, which, which, as you note, is an elemental part of the general duty clause. That's right, uh, and we'll talk about how the commission commented on foreseeability uh, as a component of uh, establishing a general duty clause violation. So in this particular case, uh, and one of the interesting things about this opinion is that they they eliminated the names of the critical characters in the storyline, uh, which makes it difficult to, it was understandable, of course, but it makes it difficult for us to uh, relate the facts in this OSHA 3030. But essentially you have an employee, which we'll refer to as employee A, and uh, that employee was a very new employee, was just recently hired, and was assigned amongst other uh, patients in her assigned portfolio, she was assigned to member L, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and perhaps other disorders. Uh, employee A had met with member L multiple times, I think maybe uh, three times earlier. This was her fourth visit. And in those prior visits, three or four prior visits, she had reported 
uh, that her interviews with Member L, uh, in those interviews, Member L had exhibited behavior that she thought was strange. It made her feel highly uncomfortable. Uh, And so she had noted that in her reports. And on the fifth visit with Member L, uh, she gets out of her car. She goes to Member L's front door of his his residence, uh, knocks on the door, and Member L comes out of the door stabbing with a knife. And uh, tragically, uh, employee A was stabbed to death and was not able to survive those wounds. Uh, OSHA conducted an investigation a number of within a number of days of that incident. Uh, the employer, Integra, c- claimed that prior to the incident that led to employee A's death, uh, it was unaware of member L's criminal history that preceded Integra being assigned to the case or accepting member L as a, as a client. Uh, member L did, in fact, have a prior violent criminal history, which preceded his becoming a member of Integra's health services. Uh, and Integra claimed that it was unaware of it. And John, as you note, they didn't have a standard practice of, of conducting criminal background checks. And I suppose, John, that it's easy for all of us to say, well, that was a really negligent omission. It's easy to come to that conclusion, but probably not realistic. I mean, when you look at healthcare services, for example, and you go into a doctor's office or an emergency room, et cetera, criminal background checks are not conducted. And, That's right. And what this company did essentially was uh, the, as a community service worker, they were essentially providing the kind of service of a patient's own family member. They would help the patient be put in touch with their insurance carrier or maybe get them, as you said, tr- uh, transportation to a health care provider like a doctor's office. Uh, they would help them find information or resources that were available in the community. Integrity didn't provide, but they were merely uh, sort of a social worker or social liaison to the member. Uh, and maybe being paid by an insurance carrier or uh, other source to make sure that the the member was getting access to those services that they might not have otherwise had the initiative or capacity to get on their own. So it's not, to me, it doesn't seem consistent to expect that a family member or in lieu of a family member, a community service worker, or for that matter, any health care worker that the community service worker or community social worker would have put them in touch with, would provide a, perform a criminal background check prior to engaging. Uh, so for that reason, Integrity was unaware of uh, the prior violent criminal history. But I will also point out that this happened uh, only a few years ago, and the criminal history, Integrity argued that that was uh, in the 1990s, and there was no subsequent criminal violent history of which they were aware. John? That's right, uh, Manish. So OSHA issued the citation to Integra for allegedly exposing employers to the hazard of being physically assaulted by members with a history of violent behavior. And this this uh, follows an interesting pattern of OSHA enforcement that applies uh, even outside of workplace violence and general duty uh, clause violations, which is that uh, the citation often addresses the absence or inadequacy of risk controls, um, which may or may not be a foreseeable issue, but the uh, 
but the impetus, or which is framed as a foreseeable issue, but then the impetus for the citation is a, a singular incident, uh, which may or may not be foreseeable. And that's, I think, an important, the practical impact for our, our members of our OSHA 3030 community is that uh, you're going to, if you see a, a, an unfortunate incident that is a serious harm or death, uh, that you're going to see an increased likelihood that OSHA will bring in a 5A1 or general duty clause enforcement action against you if there's no standard which they can use. And that that one of the things that they'll look at is uh, the absence of some practice that they think in retrospect could have possibly prevented that specific incident. Uh, so it's a, it's a history of whatever your existing practices are or the absence of a practice that, that I think OSHA will be looking for or scrutinizing for. So the commission looked at three questions, uh, whether OSHA has jurisdiction to hear this issue over the uh, under the act itself, uh, whether there was a recognizable hazard in this instance, and whether abatement of this hazard, uh, violence of this nature, was feasible for the employer. Uh, so the, the commission affirmed the administrative law judge's uh, decision, which affirmed the citation. Uh, it said that the OSH Act does give OSHA jurisdiction to cite for this instance under the general duty clause because this is a has this falls under the definition of hazard and that this hazard arises from uh, employment work or the place of employment where the work occurs. Um, it also stated that this was a recognizable hazard. Uh, recognized by Integra and the industry, and and we talked earlier about Integra's training and procedures. Uh, they had known about this uh, risk, and also they had had previous incidents. Um, and then that it, the commission held that abatement here was feasible, uh, and they they brought an expert in to say that more training would have helped, including self-defense training that the company, that the employer could have ins, uh, implemented more thorough procedures and background checks. And I think that goes back to what Manish was talking about earlier, which is that, um, you know, the, the, the feasibility and expense of some of these, uh, these procedures or abatement measures is unclear. Well, not only that, it's always easy in retrospect to say what steps... Uh, additional steps could have been taken that the employer didn't take, but if the employer took those steps, we could easily come up with a conjuring of an additional list of things that they didn't do. And when you talk about more training, I really don't know what, uh, without specificity, I don't know what the commission is suggesting that training look like or where they set the level of sufficiency. Uh, when it comes to self-defense, I note that there are a number of well-established companies that have uh, repetitive exposures to violence incidences, and those employers specifically train their employees not to engage in self-defense, but to simply, if they're cash-holding employees, to simply give over the cash without defense, uh, because they have acquired the experience to believe that that is the safest approach. So here the commissioner 
the commission is saying just the opposite. And I think it's frankly heavy handed. And I think the commission should should rely on evidence to support that proposition. And uh, the same goes for background checks. I, I think that the the idea that uh, background checks yielding criminal history in a distant past leads somebody to think that the propensity for violence is more likely flies in the face of a, a different priority to uh, give second chances. And second of all, I think it's impractical to suggest that people who are deserving of health care uh, services should go through criminal background checks merely because they have a community service worker uh, intervene to try and bridge them towards the provision of health care. That, to me, is a highly contendable proposition. And in terms of feasibility, may actually result in the reduction of services, particularly since one of the work practice controls that's being suggested is doubling up of staffing, which would result necessarily in halving of the number of patients that can be served in a given period of time or with given funds, a given set of funds. And so I do think that the Review Commission's decision, OSHA's position, and the ALJ's was perhaps heavy-handed and maybe neglectful of the complexity of the problem. So addressing jurisdiction and hazard recognition, the majority said that uh, uh, this hazard was recognized uh, because there was a nexus between the work being performed and the alleged risk. Um, but but Commissioner Sullivan pointed out that this nexus could exist without the, the foreseeability of the risk being obvious. So uh, Commissioner Sullivan, in his concurrence, tried to set a more reasonable threshold of uh, foreseeability. Um, uh, if this truly is a foreseeable risk, um, then then it should there should be a prior history of uh, exposure to violence uh, well, to to extent to establish that foreseeability. But that that's still a very uh, wide open right. window of discretion. Right. I mean, I think to certainly we can all be grateful that Commissioner Sullivan was trying to set up some kind of reminder of what the standards here really involve, which include foreseeability. On the other hand, on one hand, I think, as you say, foreseeability is, it it doesn't give the employer much of a bright line as to where they've, when they've crossed the line from unforeseeability to foreseeability, but also I think that the foreseeability problem applied to Integra. I can't imagine how somebody who had a prior violent condition could have been foreseeable if they didn't uh, and shouldn't be reasonably expected to perform background checks. But even if they had, this was pr- in the 1990s. And so we're talking about 20 years ago with no subsequent or intervening instances of, of criminal convictions involving violence. And so so even in this case, I think unforeseeability would have been how I would have characterized the problem rather than foreseeable. I think that's right. But sometimes these things happen. Uh, so, so I think the next thing to, to concern ourselves with is the impending possibility of a uh, standard involving workplace violence in, with particular regard to the healthcare industry. Uh, to be sure, the statistics for violence in the workplace are or do appear to be higher in healthcare than in the general industry. Uh, but uh, but we, we think that this is more than merely a possibility for two reasons. One, the agency itself has put workplace violence in healthcare 
on its flexible regulatory agenda. These days they just call it the regulatory agenda. Uh, uh, but in addition, the U.S. House of Representatives in the Workforce Protection Subcommittee has proposed a bill uh, to, to address workplace violence in health care. And the bill essentially is structured to uh, get out in front of the rulemaking process by the agency and simply direct the agency to, to implement a rule. Uh, without rulemaking, in fact. So so this is more than just a theoretical possibility that we might see rulemaking on this subject, and thus no longer would the agency need to rely on the general duty clause to enforce in instances where they allege workplace violence hazards in the healthcare industry, at least. So what are the differences? How does this practically make a difference for the employer? Well, for one thing, as we talked about before, uh, the general duty under the general duty clause, the idea that the agency has to establish all four elements uh, is is an absolute mandate that the courts should be rigorously uh, confining the agency to. That's right, and whereas a standard uh, del- precisely delineates the requirements of uh, of employers, the general duty clause does not. Uh, explicitly state those requirements. And so for employers to have uh, adequate notice that they could be cited, this uh, that's where this whole foreseeability analysis kicks in. Yeah, not only that, we've seen uh, the standards, the prior standards involving, uh, well, California has issued a standard involving uh, workplace violence in health care. And as well, we've seen what, at least the preliminary draft being proposed by uh, the Workforce Protection Subcommittee at the U.S. House of Representatives looks like, and they they have this idea of a hierarchy of controls, uh, which is a concept in industrial hygiene that sh- that they believe should be applied in the context of workplace violence. Had that itself has a host of problems that it carries with it. The hierarchy of controls may be well suited to industrial hygiene uh, issues or exposures like uh, chemical exposures, for example. But it it's ill-suited to something like workplace violence. A, a totally different approach would be a much more common-sense approach. And perhaps under a longer program than our 30-30 format, we could get into some of the, the issues that and challenges that will be faced by the agency in promulgating a standard and trying to do it right so that it is truly effective uh, in managing these kinds of inherently unforeseeable risks and very difficult to control risks uh, or, or hazards. And so... So those are the, some of the big, broad brushstroke differences between enforcing under the general duty clause and enforcing under standard. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the uh, the practical takeaway items that uh, that that we can address in terms of what employers can do. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so employers should employers should. Uh, work with industry groups to learn about and develop practices um, based on these foreseeable risks. Uh, Always make sure to timely contest an OSHA citation. You have 15 days to do so. Uh, I know that's a short window, but uh, that's the requirement. Um, And involve uh, outside security consultants to help with this risk assessment and implementation of procedures. Not just outside security consultants, but also uh, I think employers are, are going to be expected to consult with and, and socialize their exposure problems with 
others in their uh, industry and to try and share uh, experiences and best practices uh, and to try and develop best practices if, if the, it's still a developmental area in order to try and get a sense of uh, what, what under the general duty clause OSHA would consider uh, industry-recognized hazards or, or for that matter, what really would constitute feasible means of abatement or practical, uh, achievable means of, of reduction of, of risk. Uh, in addition, obviously, the Commission spent a lot of time dealing with this, and so I think it's uh, important for members of the OSHA 3030 community to put this in their list of takeaway items. It's important to, to develop and improve on your existing training material to test for comprehension and to constantly retrain and retrain as methods improve or change. Uh, and and to, to go through this process on a regular basis to internally check your own existing practices and then check them against the, the, cons- the accumulated opinions of the security industries as well as your uh, other employers in your own industry. Well, that's what we have time for. We, uh, we're thankful to you for participating in today's OSHA 3030. You can catch news in between today and our next OSHA 3030 on our Twitter feed, at Rathmonish. This program will be rebroadcast as a podcast, and I, I would commend you to not only subscribe to the OSHA 3030 as a podcast, but also to, when you hear it, to like or rate the podcast so that it is more easily discoverable or searchable by others. Uh, we all have LinkedIn pages and as well our Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page uh, is a source for uh, ongoing developments. Uh, and the next OSHA 3030 will be April 24th. Always a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. You'll get an invitation in your email and uh, information about that as, as well can be found on our website, khlaw.com. And when you get that invitation, please forward that on to others within your organization and at other organizations so that we can keep this program going. I've mentioned the TOSCA 3030, the REACH 3030, and the FIFRA 3030. We can find more information on that as well at khlaw.com. And the dates coming up in April uh, are posted April 17th for, for the TOSCA and REACH 3030s. So with that said... I thank you all for participating in another episode of the OSHA 3030. John Gustafson, thank you very much for joining me. And until next month, stay safe.